Welcome to Explain to Shane. I'm your host, Shane Tews at the American Enterprise Institute. On this podcast, I interview tech industry experts to explain how the apps, services, and structures of today's information technology system work and how they shape our social and economic life. Criminals are constantly looking for holes in online identity verification. This is one of the reasons the U.S. government lost $163 billion in unemployment-related fraud to malicious actors, according to the congressional testimony by the Department of Labor. We know we need better technology to enable identity management programs that can stay on top of evolving fraud schemes and work together to educate both government leaders and companies in best practices around identity management. But how do we accomplish this goal when everyone is on separate networks? As my guest today says, the government leaders must recognize fraud prevention is a team sport and work to establish centers of excellence where public sector officials and private sector experts can come together and share best practices along with data collection and newer technologies that help reduce fraud with the ability to scale at higher speeds. Jordan Burris is a senior director at Socure, where he helps design identity verification platforms that deliver a more accurate fraud detection and identity verification in real time to their clients to enable better reduction of the friction points across identity management systems. Jordan previously served in the White House Chief Information Office as Chief of Staff, where he encouraged more machine learning and artificial intelligence tools to detect fraud and root out bad actors in the identity check processes in the federal agencies. Jordan and I are joined by my AEI colleague, Jim Harper, to discuss current initiatives in government identity and talk about the state of play in identity management. Jordan, welcome to Explain to Shane. Today, we have a special guest host as well, my colleague, Jim Harper. So both Jim and I have been in the identity policy space for many years and are excited to talk to you about your previous work as the federal CIO and then the work you're doing now. At, at, you say it's SoCure? Yes, SoCure. SoCure. Very, yeah. Okay. That's awesome. Uh, so to get us started, can you just give us an overview of what you have previously done when you were in the office of the CIO? Yeah, absolutely. And, and first and foremost, thanks for having me on the, the show. Look forward to the discussion with you and Jim. Uh, so, you know, my former life, I've, I've had about uh, over a decade now at this point uh, of experience in the digital trust arena. For me, really helping to promote better confidence that we have in the processes, the people and the technology that surrounds um, our digital world. In particular, uh, prior to joining my current role or joining Secure in my current role, I served as Chief of Staff in the White House Office of Management and Budget, Office of the Federal CIO. Uh, basically, you can say I was a professional cat herder uh, and really helping to orchestrate a number of things related to IT, cybersecurity policy, and the President's budget uh, overall. Some of the things notably uh, that I worked on during my tenure was the expansion of the High Value Asset Program, overall of our legacy technology, uh, policies, uh, zero trust incubation, such that I think now the reports even coming out that the government is leading uh, even commercial world and zero trust adoption. And much of that was a credit to the work done at the CIO Council and various leaders, uh, including Sylvia Burns and others there. Um, overhaul of identity management policy. Uh, so there's a memorandum M1917 that I was the primary author for. Uh, also made pushes towards how we could do better in proofing and confirming who people were online, uh, because uh, a lot of the processes and practices that we have in place in the federal government, at least, uh, had largely been unchanged for decades. Uh, and then uh, things to close out my career, uh, because I wanted to go out on a bang, uh, was the shift to complete remote work uh, at the height of the pandemic, and then the response to solar winds. So you can you can safely say I was very busy uh, with many of the things going on in that office. 
Did, did remote work really help people finally understand what you probably were trying to do for a long time, which is we need to be able to know who is on what, you know, what systems and where they're going. And I know that the challenge with the government has always been tons of legacy systems. So was that hopefully yeah. a catalyst? Yes, absolutely. And uh, fortunately, a lot of the, the CIOs as part of the CIO Council, uh, you know, they have been long advocating and evangelizing, if you will, what should be done in order to, to move us to a more digital age. When everyone was forced to be at home, uh, that was like the, the it was like the, the moment we had all been waiting for within the IT community. And it was, it was the opportunity, if you will, to really show kind of put our best foot forward and show what could be achieved. Uh, and so, you know, excited to see that a number of agencies are still sticking with that moniker and, and still, they haven't completely gone back in person uh, yet. And, and so there's, you know, definitely opportunities that they can build on top of that uh, for the future of the way the federal government works. So give us an idea, like who, who was prepared and just had a turnkey operation? Maybe they just needed to add more people into their um, identity system versus you don't have to. Well, you can if you want. You can name what other agency. I'm curious to know, like who just really didn't wasn't ready for this. And you're like, I told you this moment was coming. <laughs> so uh, ironically enough, a lot of them were actually really prepared for it. And it was because we did a lot of prep activity prior to the ultimate decision to go remote, right? When we thought that there was an inkling that this could happen as part of just basic scenario planning, the CIO community had started really battle testing what was in place, asking for changes within their organization to be able to scale. And a number of them over uh, the the years prior had made investments in their technology that honestly prepared them for that moment. I would say that had that not been in place and that work had not been done, this probably would have played out very differently um, for everyone. Uh, and so, you know, I, I think that a lot of them did, uh, they did what we expected they were able to do, right? And be, largely be able to keep folks at home, uh, which was the primary goal. Jordan, can you give us a quick primer on the zero trust security architecture? Probably a lot of listeners have never heard of it. Maybe some only a little bit. Yeah, I mean, so zero trust security is more of a, I would say, it's a mindset shift, right, for for folks, and and really the the premise that you you have to um, you can only trust someone after you verify um, overall, and and so you know key concepts that are talked about is how do you how are you better managing devices, how are you controlling identity as a core thing uh, associated with that, how are you controlling access to data. Um, what are the permissions associated with that? How are you thinking about the way um, data flows in and out of your environment uh, in particular? If, if For some of us in the identity community within the, the government in particular, um, or those familiar with identity credential access management, we, we almost thought of it as a identity on steroids and uh, that it was, it was a, the next level of evolution and really understanding how do you put a number of the things that had already been in place and started uh, to, together in a new capacity, if you will, in order to achieve the same outcomes. I'm a huge fan of zero trust. I, I think it's, it's, I, I'm sure Jim's gonna have an opinion on this, but I, I just think it's, you need to start at a baseline, which is you can't assume that everybody knows who everyone is. And I was in the analog world. Um, I worked for the secretary of transportation right out of college. And I used to have to keep his identity, his card with me, physical card. And there were people that were concerned that the guards the then NASA building weren't paying attention to who was coming in and out. And I would literally hold his card up with my face. Like, I mean, like his face and, and they would touch it and let me in the building. And I would go in and tell security. I'm like, it's not getting any better. <laughs> they did not love me for that. Um, so tell us now you've moved on. You're at SoCure. Got that right? I think. Um, yes. What Tell us what they do that's so interesting and what you are doing. 
Yeah, so SoCure is a market leader and what I would say accurate and inclusive identity verification. It really, SoCure and joining SoCure gave me the opportunity to continue some of the initiatives, if you will, that I started while I was in government, specifically around identity and identity proofing in particular. Um, what's unique about the company is that they take data science uh, and a machine learning and AI based approach to provide a multi-dimensional view of identity for any uh, end user consumer that is engaging um, with a, an agency or an organization. And it really allows organizations to then shift into a risk-based approach for managing it uh, overall. Uh, we, we call it graph-defined identity verification because if you think about it, identity is fragmented uh, within the US in particular, right? The, the data that makes up who we are, how we uh, uh, reflect how we are, uh, who we are on digital channels, right? It's all fragmented, it's all in different pieces. The only way to get an accurate picture of who someone is online is to put it all together. And a lot of uh, organizations may try to do that through point solutions or point approaches where they're taking one solution, stacking it on top of each other, uh, which effectively in some cases only leads to false positives compounding uh, overall. Um, we take and natively build um, all elements of the identity string and put it together uh, so that way you can build a picture, if you will, of who someone is with not like a picture in terms of, you know, biometric picture, um, but a picture of someone's digital footprint, if you will. Uh, so that way I can accurately confirm that I am who I'm claiming to be when behind a computer screen, you may have never met me. So you're using both artificial intelligence and machine learning, and is it an iterative process? So once you start to identify people, it can stay and become smarter? Yeah, absolutely. So yes. And, and so what I, what I would say is um, that our approach to machine learning is the models that we've developed to help triangulate on fraud. So looking at different types of fraud would be third party or identity theft based fraud, if you will, and synthetic fraud. Um, so models that are really good um, are, are identifying what signals are present in the data at the time of transaction, what signals are present based on the devices that someone's using, their geolocation IP, in order to help make that determination. Uh, and then in order to help the models get smarter, uh, we are 1,100 plus clients today uh, actually give us what our feedback or performance outcome uh, information. So after they, what, we give them a probability that someone is who they claim to be, uh, they let them into their environment, uh, based on that, some time will pass. They will let us know whether or not we got the prediction right or wrong. Uh, and so from there, we're taking that in information and ingesting it into our system to really help um, increase our, our ability uh, to accurately verify folks. Um, you know, based on where we are today as a company, I'd say mainstream populations were able to hit 98% uh, accuracy and being able to auto-approve individuals, 94% uh, for those that are harder to prove, such as those are Generation Z, new to country, or are historically thin file. Uh, and, and so that's that's really the the success that we've um, identified in the commercial sector. We're looking to bring into the public sector uh, with the launch of our public sector business back in November. This is the Explain to Shane podcast, but I'm making it Explain to Jim with with the idea that you know a lot of listeners aren't aren't all the way into this field, obviously. So can you give us a quick primer on what synthetic fraud is versus traditional identity fraud? Yeah, absolutely. So with synthetic fraud, it comes in a number of um, different forms and, and aspects. Really, effectively, what it is, is uh, there's two main ones I'll talk about. There's uh, manipulated and completely fabricated. So what will happen is a fraudster will, um, in the manipulated use case, they'll take a real identity uh, of someone. Maybe they've stolen it, maybe it's theirs. They'll change certain aspects associated with it. And usually the way that identity is largely promulgated today is through credit header data. 
uh, in that uh, you're able to build a credit profile for someone. And so by changing various pieces of the 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 data that's uh, derived there, whether it be the, you know, the address associated with that, make a slight change to the name, et cetera, I can almost create a new profile that maybe the first time I go to apply for a credit card doesn't work. I do it 30 more times and I do it over the course of years. Well, now I've built a really um, sophisticated identity that looks like a real person, but no one's ever actually met them in particular. That's that's one version. The, the fabricated um, or completely fabricated approach is I just completely made everything up and take a similar path in order to try to instantiate what that is. Um, we're, we're seeing the rise in that uh, overall as folks are getting more sophisticated in, in the, the data that they have available. And then the really some of the, I would say, fallacy with some of the legacy tools that are in place uh, today that actually aren't really good at uh, catching this type of uh, fraud uh, overall, right? Because they're, they're, um, a lot of it is operating on a rules-based engine and then there's questions about coverage uh, and you know whether or not folks can actually accurately discern uh, who is a real individual um, behind the computer. I explain this to my friends who have young children that they need to freeze their you know, social security, their credit rating, and they're like, why? And I'm like, because you don't want to get to the point where you're getting a college application and find out they have a mortgage somewhere. And they're like, how does this happen? So I was curious, I was a couple of the articles that you sent over that you have um, written, you know, brought that back up and that and the fact that they, there is usually some sort of pattern. I've been working in the domain name addressing space and there's something called the who is, which is the information on who has their domain names, which has recently gone dark because of GDPR and a bunch of legal stuff. But uh, in, in the, the FBI and all these different agencies would say there's always a tell. It's just what criminals do. They always leave some sort of fingerprint, you know, or a digital fingerprint along the way. And you brought that up in your articles where there, um, so much of the the immense amount of fraud that happened with PPP and and all these programs that were out there to try to help people that were unemployed. Yet the criminals entity is usually the first one of the party figured out how to uh, you know get into these funds and that they would use the same phone number fourteen hundred times. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the fact that we didn't have programs in place to be able to just kind of do a dragnet and catch those quick things right away and, and just at least cabin them off and say, like, well, OK, let's let's do a second round interview on this before we just start pumping tens of thousands of dollars towards these people. And the fact that we can't get it all back. So that was that was a real um, telling. I think that was, you know, an interesting point. So the synthetic, you know, and the protecting the identities, I think, is really important. Yeah. And, you know, it's something that often gets missed um, and we're trying to talk more to uh, the market overall and, and try to lead the way is that you know identity verification being able to confirm who someone is um, for the purpose of eligibility the purpose of getting benefits um, engaging as part of civil society uh, that actually is it's it's on the same coin as you know having to manage fraud prevention or fraud detection in particular right and for the identity community or a number of programs that exist today we really only focused on kind of, I would say your basic level, first layer of, uh, can I at least confirm that an identity exists? Can I maybe confirm maybe that someone asserted an identity and accepted, right? You can see this in a number of online accounts that are created. What fairly, uh, what seldomly happens is there is that that other check that takes place to look at um, the the probability that someone is committing uh, what would be third-party fraud or synthetic fraud in particular. And so it's only by mirroring the two that you're actually able to really give assurance uh, that it's the right individual you're trying to do business with or that is engaging for some type of public service or benefit. Jordan, from your time in the CIO's office, do, do you have a sort of ontology of the different reasons that the government needs to identify people? Is there a sort of categorization of these things? It seems like across the board, 
Um, there are so many different programs doing so many different things, but is there a way of thinking in an organized way about all the, um, all the reasons the government has to identify people? So I would like to say there was uh, a very organized way. Uh, there, there's probably something simplistic about there's a little bit of chaos associated with the way in which we engage. I mean, in a nutshell, right, the, the government interacts uh, or engages with the public in order to serve them for whatever the mission um, mission associated with the, the organization that they're going to, right? So Social Security Administration, it's for the administration of Social Security benefits or the Social Safety Net, right? If it's um, Department of Education, a lot of time, the time through FSA, it's through um, federal student aid, right? And, and student loans in particular. Um, immigration, you have um, processes that are put in place for identifying folks there. And so, you know, there's a number of things that would come up. You can say law enforcement, you can say social benefits, you can say healthcare um, is kind of broad buckets, but really to take a level deeper in a lot of cases, it's really important to understand, I guess, the, the paths associated with the citizen journey or the, the public's journey uh, within the U.S. and understanding all the touch points that they may need to have with the government in order to really build out that robust map of all the places where they may need to engage, right? Everything from visas, uh, work visas to, um, you know, being able to get um, food, food benefits uh, for struggling families. You also talked about Center of Excellence, which I know we tried early on to do purely in the cybersecurity arena, and it just had a hard time getting the public-private entities to work amongst each other. So you talk about the private sector experts come together and share best practices, data technologies, and help reduce fraud. How are you getting the those two entities to come together, the government side and the private sector side? Yeah, so I'm actually trying to build – we're trying to build on the same thing that I pushed while um, – while I was in government, uh, and is that you know from from there, my, you know, focusing on cybersecurity element, it was that cybersecurity is a team sport, right? It takes a number of organizations coming together. It takes a partnership with industry in order to combat some of the threats that we're seeing, especially when they're coming from nation states, right? A lot of this played out in solar winds and how the government and industry had to come together in order to identify the problem and then craft solutions uh, to the problem, right? And how do we actually chart a path forward? Same thing needs to happen in the, the fraud arena, identity fraud arena, as it relates uh, to government benefits. And a lot of this will start with, you know, we've built model uh, effectively of how you could do this, partnering with um, the commercial side uh, of the house, right? We, we've done this with, again, as I mentioned earlier, our 1100 plus clients engage in the journey with us, right? They're helping us to be able to share information uh, that are needed in order to identify, hey, there's a lot of fraudulent activity. There's a fraud ring that's hitting this type of business. Um, we can share those types of insights and signals of the tactics that they are using with other um, in, uh, other parties as well to get uh, a leg up on it. The same thing needs to happen in the public uh, sector space, and a lot of it is going to start with education and understanding the benefits associated with it and being transparent about what happens behind the scenes such that there is no um, uh, illusion that's happening about, you know, why information is being used, you know, and it's very quick for folks to jump to um, the global tracking uh, that would happen from a public sector standpoint, right? There's there's ways and methods, there's privacy protections that can be put in place in order to confirm that information is only being used for its intended purpose. And, you know, we believe that the center of excellence that's needed is around identity verification and fraud, because a lot of the signals, a lot of the issues that were identified during the pandemic, uh, as we were watching UI fraud or unemployment insurance fraud, rather, uh, take place, if 
you know, information was exchanged with California and Georgia or from Texas to Michigan, et cetera, we, we probably could have cut down on a lot of what we saw. Uh, and so, we, you know, we're just trying to lift what really is the best practice that we saw uh, or that we implement today in the commercial sector and bring it over to the public sector. And so um, leading the charge with conversations with agencies and, and, and leaders in the legislative branch. I talked to the CEO of ID Me a couple months ago, and he said that, you know, he'd say to these states that, you know, they've got somebody in Alabama that is applying for unemployment in Arizona. Do you want me to flag that? And they were like, it just isn't in our remit. Like they knew it was fraudulent, but they just like the one group was doing what they were supposed to do. He's like, I'm going to, you know, flag star these. If you guys want to do something about it, let me know. And he said the, the states were like, not not currently our problem. So just really interesting how much we kind of knew was going on, but just didn't have the wherewithal or the the human power to, to figure out how to get ahead of it. Yeah. I mean, some of it wasn't a focus at the time, right? right. I mean, let's just, yeah. the, the name of the game was get uh, benefits to those as quickly as possible. And uh, government historically has taken a pay and chase approach. Uh, and so again, we, and that's because there's the belief. So what leads to that is the belief that the only way you can really confirm who someone is, is by putting a lot of gates in front of them, creating a lot of friction, a lot of bureaucratic process. And as such, then it's going to slow down the process, right? That's, we believe that that's a myth. Like that doesn't have to be the case. And there is a way to do this and keep the same type of experience associated with what you would see in any commercial business today. You take what your banks, you talk about um, gaming companies, uh, et cetera, right? It, it is possible to recreate that for public sector and digital services, but there's a, there's a blueprint that has to be followed. Uh, and if you're not following that blueprint, well, then obviously you're going to result to really some of these legacy approaches that are out there. You mentioned in your Route 50 article, uniform labeling, and I, I didn't click through. Oh, I actually clicked through to see what it was, and it wanted me to sign up for a white paper, and I haven't had time to read it yet. So <laughs> I thought, I'll just ask you, what is uniform labeling? Yeah, absolutely. So it's the it's a white paper that was put together. Um, I worked with uh, one of the smartest individuals I know on fraud uh, within our organization, Mike Cook. He helped coin the term uh, synthetic uh, identity. Uh, fraud in particular, but basically what it is, is when you look at kind of the, the maturation of how do you assess um, fraud impacts, how do you start to you know apply machine learning based approaches to be able to get better insights into how fraudulent activity might be taking place online. One of the things that are associated with high performing organizations and uh, the white paper also calls out the fact that no one is actually really high performing uh, today. There's those that are leading, uh, but there's a lot of work that's to be done overall is that they actually are able to evaluate outcomes associated with a transaction after it's performed. And what I mean by transaction is I go to set up an online account. There is a flag that usually will take place as to whether or not I'm uh, a real person, a fraudulent individual, or they suspect that I'm fraudulent, but they haven't confirmed it in some case. Right? And that's an oversimplification of it. Um, but the point being is that you can take those labels that get associated with the outcome and then use it to help target and you say refine your models. So you understand what is happening within your particular population uh, or the folks that are engaging with you. What are you likely to see more of? Labels can exist and be on you know a number of different things uh, in particular for your environment, not just the types of fraud that may be associated with it, right? You can also start to look at you know what data can you discern based on, hey, is it potentially that someone is coming in and we're flagging that um, we're having an issue being able to identify addresses for these individuals. Maybe there's an issue with your solution, or maybe it's the scrutiny that you place on your solution where you're um, providing uh, too much undue burden on the individual uh, to do that, right? And so if you really want to take a, a reflective approach in which you can refine and optimize your process over time, labels uh, turn to, uh, are the key ultimately to being able to pull that off. So the um, 
paycheck protection program fraud on that program seems to me like really an opportunity missed. Uh, I was still just sitting in my think tank doing my work and I should have been out there um, trying to collect all the checks. But uh, but at, at a higher level, you did, Jim. <laughs> at a higher level, you know, the problem, the problem of uh, improper payments is, is a significant one. Uh, and you and I were both on a thing called the Joint Financial Management Improvement Program. It should have a, 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 a clever name that you could pronounce, JFMIP, but it doesn't. It doesn't really work, <laughs> work for that. I felt like I felt like I came to it as a real outsider, and there's there, you know, managed to, to contribute some. But uh, I think you know more about it. Can you tell us what what they're doing there, what you see having come out of it, and, and if there are other major programs that are that are going on to try to sort of strengthen um, federal identity, maybe without getting us to a national ID. Yeah. So, uh, I, yeah, from the JFMIP standpoint, uh, this is uh, it's a joint collaborative. It takes place uh, between Department of Treasury, Office of Management and Budget, Office of Personnel Management, and uh, General, uh, Government Accountability uh, Office. And if you think about it, it's under the purview of what was the of what is the CFO Council. And the idea here is that um, they they come together to help solve problems as it relates to payment or program integrity overall one of the uh, priorities or initiatives that they kicked off and this was a result of actually the prior administration's across agency priority goal where we identified that for a number of programs where we had issues with payment integrity or being able to uh, monitor uh, program integrity we could not actually find the root cause associated with identity uh, overall, right? There, every time we ask the question of, hey, what are you tracking related to identity? Is it an identity fraud issue, synthetic issue? Is it all these things? A lot of what we're talking about labeling, how that would have helped, didn't exist then. And so this study was undertaken and we it engaged, uh, it was a two-day uh, workshop with industry leaders, those in government, um, and, and Jim, like you mentioned, like we, we were both on uh, various panels or discussions associated with it, but where you can provide perspectives about like kind of the state or the ecosystem associated with identity, right? Were there um, fallacies associated with what's being implemented today, where there's opportunities uh, for moving forward? And the, the culmination of it uh, was a report and um, st- uh, tool that was put together uh, to basically lay out all the ways in which you could approach identity, all the ways and methods that it could be applied by an organization, a tool that was, could be used to do like a high level abstract thinking in terms of the best practices associated with identity verification. Um, and, and really, you know, I have to you know give kudos um, to, to many of the folks over at GAO um, who, who worked on that because it, it helped frame, for me at least, the various stages of maturity an organization could be at, right? Like I, I talk a lot about machine learning and AI and how that can help advance. There's some that are still very nascent in their journey in particular. And so it, it, it helped uh, lay out all the paths associated with it. And it even calls into how you could use, you know, behavioral biometrics, how you could use uh, data associated with that, uh, with the information of the transaction in order to make um, informed decisions. And so, you know, I, I consider it as a stepping stone. It'll likely end up being used in, um, if I was still in the government, this is what I would do. So we'll see what actually happens. Um, but they'll likely end up being used in future policies or um, budget requests or even um, directives coming um, from the, the White House, right? I think they even alluded to one in the, the recent report and saying that there's an executive order uh, forthcoming on identity theft. And so it wouldn't surprise me if some of the recommendations or things that were highlighted in there were, were, were likely included. Um, so, yeah. You know, Jim, JFMIP just rolled off Jordan's tongue. I don't know why you're having a trouble with that. <laughs> you needed to have like an animal or something associated with it. You know, the JFMIP. 
<laughs> now, if I look at my friends at SZA, they always come up with really good names. I need to. We, yeah. we, should, have, we should have had them uh, do some branding <laughs> for this. You know, when I when I presented, um, I and this is the issue, this is where I focused for a long time, and maybe why they included me was to get a little bit of this perspective. You know, I talked about the risks of a national identity system, and if I recall correctly, you might have thrown a little thumbs up in the chat when that happened. I might be mistaking you for someone else or something like that, but the you know the social consequences of these systems are important. Um, we may come to that question of, of national identity, but you've written about how the current identity system um, uh, it serves poorly um, certain distinct communities and leads to inequity. You want to tell us a little bit about that that thinking and what could be done? Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, and I, I think I was one of the folks who probably talked about how a national identity system doesn't really work. Oh, just out. give him his fantasy. He wants a thumbs there up from you. There weren't very yeah. many in that word. Yeah, I, I, I believe it probably was, and it's because, like, again, it, it's all based on like what you build off of, right? We we far too often, especially within the U.S., look at to like Estonia, which I'm pretty sure is the size yep. of Rhode Island, uh, to a model that they've been. That's nice employed. of you. I, I right, was going right. to say New Jersey. I think Rhode Island. <laughs> So, but you know, ultimately, it's it's just the reality of that, you know, the scale doesn't work. And also our values and the way in which we approach things are just not the same uh, for the for the U.S. in particular. When we look at identity as it exists within the U.S. or just in general, probably macro concepts are being talked about globally. It, it's a human right, ultimately, right? You, you have the right to be able to prove who you are. It was even so much so that I think the World Economic Forum at the G20, a number of um, um conversations were had about what does it mean to create an identity that is accessible to folks by 2030, uh, 2030 um, and do it across multiple countries. And during COVID, instead of just making an identity, they accelerated to be a digital identity because they recognize that we all may not be able to interact in person. When you look at what happens today, historically with you know identity within the US, right, we've evolved from I think at one point there were probably tribal tattoos, there were is jewelry that was being used around the late 1800s, early 1900s, there was the advent of you know, credit bureaus, uh, which then somehow became the proxy for um, identity because they had so much information on you as part of your financial identity. Well, largely that model has not changed, right? We've added some things to it. We've, we've you know, deployed various document types, but like that model hasn't changed overall, so much so that you know, when you look at the credit bureau system today, or the credit header data in particular is used as a you know, primary method for identifying someone, there's about 45 million people that are underbanked within the US and they don't show up in these files. I can tell you that when I was younger um, and uh, many, many, many years ago uh, that uh, I was unable to apply for any type of credit card. I was unable to get any access. No one in my family um, love them to death, but they weren't able to you know, be co-signers for me either, right? And that basically, if you rely solely on that type of data, you're going to leave people out. Additionally, when you think about it, a lot of the KBA or knowledge-based authentication uh, technology that is now deprecated according to NIST, um, but is still largely being used across a number of organizations because they haven't identified what the next best thing is. Um, yet we'll work on that, but the um, but they, they, the knowledge-based authentication um, components are all built off of the credit header data in particular, right? A lot of it's built off of that. So it's actually really easy for a fraudster to game that than it is an, the average human being because I don't remember all the things associated with me, whereas a fraudster can go on the dark web, pay a few cents, 
buy my identity information because I'm sure it's been breached multiple times at this point. I was involved in many of the breaches that have been out publicly. Uh, and so they can probably paint a better picture of where I've lived, what jobs I've had, <laughs> my income over the, the years in order to, to answer some of those questions. And then you have uh, approaches that are being deployed where you take a single element, identity element in particular, and you can look at someone's phone, someone's email address individually, and you try to make a decision based off of that. Well, as I talked about earlier, when you look at those things individually, they don't tell the whole picture about an individual. They very easily could have been intercepted. And when you try to combine those types of solutions together, you get compounding false positives. Because what if I'm going through a name change uh, in particular, right? As someone would do if they were getting married uh, in, in a number of cases. You may not have updated your information in everywhere. So if I have one system that's telling me my name should be, you know, Jordan Smith and the other saying that I should be Jordan Burris, uh, there's a conflict that happens in signals. And so to based on the business rules associated with that organization, someone will fail. Uh, so that becomes a problem. And then my favorite, uh, not really my favorite, um, but the, the one that uh, gets talked about a lot is document-centric approach. And this is where you're heavily relying on would be your driver's licenses or um uh, passports or documents in particular to confirm who someone is. And even taking it a step further, it's the, the matching of an individual's face to those documents in particular. I mean, I would say physical documents alone don't solve for synthetic identity fraud because, again, this is a fictitious identity. No one can actually call out that the, the identity doesn't exist. And if there's really good, sophisticated actors that are able to replicate, especially when you're doing online uh, checks uh, of an identity document, you know, what that may look like. Um, and then, you know, if you look at just our underlying infrastructure associated with getting some of the um, uh, driver's licenses, for an example, today, Real ID in particular, which I talk about often, um, it's still very paper-based. Um, you know, very recently, I have a I have a three-month-old daughter, uh, and there was a paperwork error as uh, after she was born, and her Social Security card never actually got processed. Now, I understood the importance of why she needed to have it. Um, and so I immediately went to the SSA, stood out in line, sweated in the summer heat uh, in order to make sure that she had a card issue. But that may not happen for a number of people. And then you realize that later on down in life, she would need it for what would be potentially applying for you know, student loans. She would need it to be able to get a real ID compliant um, uh, license or ID at, at some point in time. And if you don't have those things, now you're creating just a greater barrier for someone being able to uh, engage in the ecosystem. So those issues exist uh, within the environment. There's many things that can be um, deployed or, or done to resolve some of them. I think I've talked and written about the fact that we could very easily digitize um, what would be the social security card, the information associated with that, and the birth certificates um, as exists with the Departments of Vital Statistics, right? That's just not an initiative that's been prioritized because it's kind of working. Like folks kind of get it, but it's only when you have problems you realize how you know it may not serve, uh, solve for everyone. When it comes to data that's being used, I'm associated with an individual, right? It's not relying on just credit data alone, right? It's a good foundation, maybe as a starting point, but you have to look beyond that. You have to be expansive. We, uh, it's a cure. We evaluate um, eight to ten data sources a quarter, and we kind of scour the earth, if you will, to see what data sources we could use in order to help paint a better picture of who someone is. Why does that help? Because it helps us to get out, uh, get access to the people who fall outside of those traditional, your traditional mainstream profile, right? Those who are just entering the U.S., those who are younger, who are just reaching uh, age 18, um, and those um, who've historically been underbanked. And then there's like a mindset shift that has to take place as it relates to how we actually look to confirm who someone is and recognize that we all don't 
uh, our life experiences, we all don't, our, our makeup uh, is not the same. So I can just, you know, quick example, names. Uh, would may not surprise you that a number of algorithms that are deployed today to do searches for someone's names have a very heavy bias toward Anglo-Saxon names. Why? Because English is predominant. Uh, uh, English American is, you know, predominant within the, the U.S. But if you look at South Asian names, if you look at um, those who may have uh, doubling consonants, such as the name Muhammad, if you look at um, what are various naming components based on where someone um, grew up, um, initials that are used for individuals' names, you can find very quickly how folks can get lost in the data that just gets stored regularly. And so you almost have to have like this obsession with looking for all the ways in which someone could be left behind to solve for those types of, of challenges. And that's, you know, that's what we're, we, we're doing at Secure. And we're, we're trying to put out, if you will, more playbooks, more rules, more white papers that I know Shane doesn't want to download on um, what we could uh, be doing in order to help solve this problem more holistically uh, for everyone. I'll download it eventually. I just didn't have time to do it today. But um, going back <laughs> to your, uh, there, there was an interview by a woman who is very senior at the World Bank who's from South South America. And she said that when she had to explain to her father, she had to get a credit card in the United States. He was horrified because he was like his entire life. He's tried not to have those, you know, owe anybody any money. And she said, you have to in the United States really to have an identity. And she said it was it was an interesting conversation. So I get that. Well, tell us what do you have on the horizon? What's what's going on in the future we should be taking a look for? Well, so on the, on the horizon for us, right, is um, I mean, first and foremost, right, you know, part, part of my role is working with agency leaders in order to help them solve today's challenges with existing products that we have. Another thing is you know, looking to what we could do um, to help advance uh, in national identity uh, or the, the identity conversation, not in a national identity system in particular. Mm -hmm. So one of, one of the areas, you know, we're looking at is, well, you know, how do we basically help better educate on what it means to test solutions uh, for outcomes, right? Uh, in the public sector space in particular, we're, we're very good at adopting solutions based on kind of, I would say, word of mouth and what's been said or what's been quickly deployed, but not really evaluating for the efficacy of outcomes. And so we've been um, working on a number of initiatives to help showcase what does it mean to test for identity outcomes? What does it mean to test for better performance from identity providers? Because we're not in this to just solve um, uh, identity uh you know, like a one and done thing. We want to raise the bar in the industry overall, right? As a company, SoCure has the mission uh, to verify 100% of good identities in real time and completely eliminate identity fraud as it exists. In order to do that in the public sector space, we're just going to be out there evangelizing uh, what needs to happen there. Um, and then we're also looking to help participate and partner with a number of agencies as they, you know, try to roll out pilots as it relates to um, solving these challenges. Uh, and, and so that we can showcase, again, what good looks like, what a good experience looks like um, for, for everyone uh, in particular, and then really help accelerate them on their journey uh, to better identity maturation. Fabulous. Jim, any last questions? I want to congratulate Jordan on the new baby daughter. <laughs> Thank you. I hope that she is a good sleeper for your sake. <laughs> Thank you. I, ho I hope it lasts. We'll, we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> Jordan, thank you so much for being on Explain to Shane today and explaining a lot of really important stuff to us. We will we'll continue to, to watch this space and hope you will stay in touch with us. Thank you for listening to another episode of Explain to Shane. For more episodes, subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your preferred listening platform. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a review and tell your friends and colleagues to tune in. We'll see you on the next episode of Explain to Shane.